Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Stefan Granier is our first overseas guest on the podcast, and a really great guy. He is currently the founder and lead innovator for his company, Mental Health Innovations. Steph is very practical and pragmatic in his approach, and he probably is one of the world's leading authorities on mental health peer support programs. I've had the opportunity to work with Steph for two years, and he and his team are doing some really innovative work, breaking down stigma and creating peer support programs for large public and private organisations. He started his career in the Canadian Defence Force and spent 29 years with them. In that time, he did some really challenging deployments to Rwanda and Afghanistan. He returned to Canada haunted by his experiences. Facing post-traumatic stress disorder and an archaic establishment, he spent 10 years confronting and changing the military mental health system from within. He was then seconded to the Mental Health Commission of Canada, where he was given a brief to develop peer support programs for public and private organisations. His organisation is also our North American partner for our We Care 365 Scaling Mental Health Programs. So we obviously have very similar outlooks and values. He was awarded the Order of Canada in 2019 for his contribution to workplace mental health. I know you'll find lots of valuable nuggets in this discussion. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Stéphane Grenier to our show. And Stéphane is our first overseas visitor. He lives in Canada. Welcome, Steph. You're welcome. Glad to be with you. I wish I was with you physically, though, in Australia these days, but thank you. Yeah, I look forward to catching up in person, that's for sure. Steph, what does care in the workplace mean to you? The one thing that comes to mind when I hear that question as a, as a, as a CEO of a, a fairly small organization is when something interferes with the people nothing else matters as far as I'm concerned, right? Mm. For a short moment of time. You know, in the old days, Graham, there was a, there was a saying, you know, uh, my door is always open. Well, now (laughs) in the pandemic at all, there's no doors that we work at home and it's zoom and all this stuff. But to me, uh, you know, for those who have doors, then if you're going to say that, then leave your door open. But uh, to me is when somebody's getting in the way of a person's ability to, 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 to live a balanced life and all this, I think we really need to put people first. So what that means for me is if I have to spend an extra 15 minutes after a meeting to talk to somebody and that's getting in the way of business, then it's my role to focus on that. Yes. Uh, so I think that's really what it means to me is, uh, uh, is work and wait. People need to be put first, right? Excellent. And uh, just for our listeners, Steph, could you just explain what Mental Health Innovation does, the organization that you've founded? Right. Well, I, you know, I better try to walk the talk anyways, because 
what our company does here in, in North America is we try to help organizations rehumanize themselves by being able to pivot and actually do what it takes culturally with their managers and their people to actually move into a space and create the conditions where it comes naturally to put people first. And so we'll implement all sorts of various programs. Our flagship service here is a peer support program. So we we crowdsource human benevolence from the organization itself. We select people, we train them, and then these people are available to their coworkers. That's our flagship service. And we do other stuff in the in the consultancy. And we are a very happy, proud reseller of We Care, the product that uh, your organization uh, so kindly shared with us. So we're a mental health consultancy. And uh, as I say, we try to rehumanize workplaces. I really like that. It's a lovely, uh, lovely description. And I think for uh, the listeners as well, it would be great to understand how you came to be in this role. Can you just give a quick overview of, uh, you know, your career and what were the key elements which uh, led to you seeing the need to create uh, mental health innovations? Yeah. So, um you know, I grew up uh, a happy young lad in uh, Montreal, uh, you know, the one of the our larger cities here, uh, just in the outskirts. My dad was a construction worker. I came from a big French-Canadian family here in uh, in Canada. So I uh, had a happy, happy-go-lucky life. Uh, joined the military at a fairly young age as a young, young adult. Spent 29 years in the military. And it's during my military career as, as a leader, I've always been a boss, right? I was, a, I was an officer and I was a young boss and then a not so young boss and an older boss. And, um, but came from very humble beginnings, perhaps. Uh, not that my, my ends are, are not humble anymore, but my father was a very grounded person. No, we weren't rich, you know, we weren't, uh, um, and, uh, my father was a blue collar worker. So I always valued, uh, people and my grandfather was a carpenter. So for some reason, you know, uh, when I became an officer in the military, I, I felt I, I always a need to be close to the, the troops, right? Long story short, towards the middle of my career, I went to Rwanda and Australian forces were with us in, in Africa and in, in Rwanda at the time. I spent 10 and a half months there, came back from Rwanda, a very, very different person, Graham. And it's then I realized through my almost six to seven year journey in coming back from Rwanda, a broken human being, uh, how difficult it was to regain some semblance of recovery in my mental health uh, and decompensation, if I wish. But I realized there was something missing. And it's the fact that in our ecosystems and our organizations here in North America, we seem to put all of our eggs in the clinical basket when it comes to mental health. Um, and so if a, if, if a soldier like me is not doing well, we'll send them to a psychiatrist and we'll give him pills. But after that, there's nothing else. Mm. And as I often say today, and I used to say that in the past, my suicide attempts were not in my doctor's office, right? They were, they were out there where people were interacting with me. So as you can see, there's a very close correlation between my experience and the experience of thousands of my colleagues in the military and now millions of Canadians, Americans, Australians that are on that path to recovery alone. And so 
you can't see a big degree of separation between what I went through and what I decided to do to serve my country and perhaps others in the, in the making and to try to create a better future for those who follow us, right? Because like you, I've gone through some troubling times, but wouldn't it be nice if we can leave that legacy for those who follow in our footsteps and don't have to recover alone, but they have a social construct, you know, and your model does a great deal of work there. So that's where I've come from. Uh, and that's how I got into what I do today. Yeah. And do you find it difficult to explain what post-traumatic stress is and what it's like to have it? Well, it's funny because um, I authored a book several years ago. And at the end of my book, although I don't argue with the diagnosis with doctors, what I've said to a couple of clinician friends of mine, and I actually end my book that way by saying, I don't think I have PTSD. I don't think I have post-traumatic stress disorder. And it's not because I'm ashamed or, or whatnot. It's because I funda fundamentally believe that I suffered in Africa, in Rwanda, a moral injury. My sense of right and wrong was conflicting so much with what we had to do or not do mm. that something happened. It's like I came back to North America and my moral compass was, was off. Mm. Nothing made sense anymore. And of course, it's not as clear as that. Uh, but I, I do believe that uh, science is evolving. Uh, I know the American and Canadian psychiatric associations are, are looking at, you know, the older terms. And as you know, PTSD was, was coined and created and, you know, at the end of the Vietnam War, where you had forces deployed to Vietnam and the Americans, we, we did not go to Vietnam. Uh, but we now know that there's a lot of research that is occurring around the moral injury construct, where it's a slightly different trajectory. And sometimes I feel, Graham, that maybe I was never really cured or I was never really treated properly for my ailment because that's not what was wrong with me. I had such a troubling moral injury that trying to, and I remember at the time, uh, one of my first psychiatrists kept saying, so what are the most traumatic things that happened to you over there? And I thought, well you know, okay, a young boy got shot beside me. Well, that's not a good day, right? I, you know, I, I picked up this and I almost stepped on a landmine and uh, a person almost shot me and all this. But it's funny because the way the psychiatrist Graham was describing trauma, I'm thinking, well, I can't remember. I remember going, Ugh. I remember, you know, in that, that incident where this, this, this soldier almost shot me, I thought I, I did feel, you know, like a shiver in my spine and all this stuff. And I went, oh my God. But at the end of the day, I don't really remember. Was I traumatized? I, I don't know. Right. But what I do remember is coming back with so much guilt and so much, uh, and so I think, I think science, psychiatry, psychology is still unpacking all of this, right? I think we still have a lot more to learn than what we know. But that's, that's my opinions, right? Because I'm not a clinician, of course. Yeah. And it's interesting, as, as you know, I had a really bad episode of depression as well. And I have no doubt that there were some genetic things that, you know, contributed to my depression. But looking back in perspective, I really think it was a crisis of meaning, um, you know, just not living the life that I, should, I thought I should be living sort of thing. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I fully agree that, um, 
you know, other things like having a sense of purpose, other things like being able to use your strengths really contribute to, you know, feeling good about our work. And, uh, you know, I can't begin to imagine the trauma of seeing that th- those things that you saw. But uh, you came back and you decided that you were going to try and change the culture of the Canadian Defence Force. What did um, what led to that decision? And can you just explain a little bit about what you did, what the journey was to try and change a culture of an organisation that large? It's, it's like a hundred thousand people or something, isn't it? It's it's a, it's a big big organisation. Yeah, the culture the culture was really a medical culture, which is, I believe, I don't know how it is in Australia. Uh, but here in North America, we still believe there's still a, uh, sort of the, the hard coding in, uh, the, like the hard code <laughs> inside our psyche is, well, you have, if you have a mental health problem, you must see a psychologist. You must see a social worker, a psychiatrist. And, uh, what I'm, what I'm saying today is there's nothing wrong with seeing a doctor, but, uh, I, I think there's other very, very helpful conversations that can be had. Uh, that can help human beings struggle through and actually get on and stay on the path of recovery. And so at the time, I was very much consumed. This was uh, when when I came back from Rwanda was 1995. So I, I left in uh, 1994 during the genocide and I came back at the end of my 10 and a half month tour. Um, and then I spent six years trying to figure out what was wrong with me and try to get a, some some help. And when I started working on what I do today, uh, I really thought there was a huge gap. I call it, Graham, sort of a two-legged stool approach. I'm sure like you you have a stool in your kitchen, or right? And it, it, has, it might have four legs, but minimum is three. <laughs> Nobody buys a two-legged stool, right? <laughs> and the analogy I would make is that we in North America here perceive what we need to do to support people who are impacted by mental health challenges is essentially make sure they have a doctor or psychiatrist to talk to. And uh, if they need sleeping pills or antidepressants, they get, and we reduce the barriers to medication uh, through group insurance benefits and things like that. And I'm thinking, well, that's all good. And I'm for all of that. I'm not against all that, but that's a two-legged stool. The third legged, the third leg of the stool is essentially what are the social constructs, the the ability for somebody to be able to say, oh my God, Graham, I, I've, I've been through a similar thing, not to create a pity party around the person you're supporting, but to create a, a bridge that can actually bring compassion and empathy to life. Because once you've been through something, and, and by the way, not everybody can do this. Not everybody who's been through troubling times can actually support effectively somebody else. But you know, uh, a lot of people can, and it's it's about teasing that out and actually uh, creating uh, the ability for somebody not to have to recover alone, because that journey is very, very lonely. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I think it's so simple in a sense, but we here have lost touch with the fact that it's, you know, and I can only imagine a hundred years ago, yeah. this support was probably more natural, more organic more innate in our ability because, you know, the, the urbanization effect hadn't happened, you know, and, but I think we have to go back to some of the first principles of, of what it is to be human. And sometimes you just got to support people, right? And you're not treating them. You're not the doctor, but those conversations save lives in some cases. 
they're very supportive and productive, right? Yeah. I read a study published in um, Nature magazine last week and it was talk- talking about it analysed help calls to helplines during the pandemic and they found out that the major cause of the, of the calls was through loneliness. It wasn't, you know, severe s- suicide threat. It was more about loneliness. And what you're talking about is, you know, that that concept of being able to support each other is a really important component of our mental health, isn't it? Having people that we can confide in, we can be vulnerable with, and likewise, they can be vulnerable with us sort of thing. Yeah, I think that's the silver lining of the pandemic um, is that I think through the human experience that the pandemic has taken us through, I think organizations, people, politicians are realizing, but, you know, I want to be wrong here, Graham, but, uh, and I hope I am wrong, but I believe that my worst nightmare is that we will not learn sufficiently during the pandemic as systems, as organizations, as politicians, as healthcare systems, uh, that we must not forget that before this pandemic started, certainly here in North America, we were in a mental health epidemic of gigantic proportions where 70% in some, in some areas of disability costs are directly relating to mental health. And I think that, I, I hope I'm wrong, but I, I believe that organizations and leaders and politicians will think, oh, the pandemic's over now, so loneliness is no longer an issue because people can socialize, they can visit each other, therefore we do not have a problem to resolve. You're perfectly right. I think the, the isolation prompts a lot of calls, but what is loneliness? It's, it's not a knee problem. It's not an ankle problem. It's not a torn ligament. It's a mental health problem, right? So essentially... All these things, all these roads lead to this mental health challenge that we as human beings are exposed to constantly. And I just sincerely hope that once the pandemic is over, we do not believe that we don't have to really aggressively address these issues. Yeah. And we had a a parliamentary inquiry about mental health just about, um, came out about a month ago. And the finding of that was that the mental health implications of the pandemic will go on for five years, you know, from, from now, basically. So it's not going to be a sudden fix. There's been so much um, change, uh, so much trauma, so much uncertainty along the way that uh, it's going to take a long way, a long time to play out. Um, and they estimated five years. So it, it's no quick fix, is it? It's no quick fix, and I, I've often compared the pandemic to the um, uh, the trajectory uh, a soldier goes on, or mm. the journey a soldier goes on when they go to war. Right? Yeah. And in the aftermath of a pandemic, I believe will be very similar to the aftermath of coming back home. Now, I know that nobody's coming back home physically, but figuratively, when this thing is over and the the new variant now is dealt with, and we've all been vaccinated with boosters on top of boosters, when this thing is declared over, uh, the marathon will be over. And often what I say is that in a sustained sort of effort as human beings to go through adversity, most people are resilient. 
I mean, yeah, people have called for loneliness and things like that. But guess what? The same person who called probably got up the next morning, had their coffee and went to work or did what they needed to do. That doesn't mean they're not lonely, right? But people are inherently resilient. But at one point, the cumulative wear and tear of a long campaign of a two, two and a half, three year pandemic, uh, the ache starts when it's over a little bit like a, a long run. I think you're a runner, right? So if you, if you push yourself on a, on a given day and you run an extra four or five clicks, you know, you might be able, you're feeling good. You're feeling that you're beat, you're on a good, you know, and, and you just ran, but the next day you might have a little bit of soreness, right? And I think that's what happens to the human psyche sometimes is in the face of adversity, we, we plow through it. And that's a good thing. We got to get through this. A bit like like a war zone. You got to get through the war, and if you if you're lucky enough to fly back home, and you fly back home, and it's over. But then that's when we struggle. It's the aftermath, and I would say five years is probably very conservative, right? Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you're perfectly right. I think that's the phenomena that we're going to go through. Yeah. Just jumping back to your time in the in the defense force, uh, when you decided that you would like to help reshape the way that, um, you know, some of these mental health issues were addressed. What were the steps that you went through to try and move the needle? Hmm. Well, I remember the first thing was to find a champion, find the one person in the organization that will actually think, uh, and I did find this person, right? He was a three-star general. um, And uh, he actually said, you're onto something, right? And actually gave me the this mandate now at the time i can tell you that the surgeon general in the canadian military was not very pleased that a non-medical <laughs> person had been appointed to this file right but i understood the boundaries from the get-go but the surgeon Gen- the medical people did not know that i understood the boundaries mm. and so they automatically believed that oh my god here's this major at the time then colonel who who you know, has PTSD, who's still in the military, what kind of trouble is he going to make for us, right? And of course, I was a little bit of a maverick in, in my organization, and I didn't take no for answers. And I remember the second thing I did is actually create a term. The term is operational stress injury. And it is not me, but somebody put the term OSI on Wikipedia, and uh, my name is on there, and it's, it's not me. I swear to God, it's not me. Uh, <laughs> but I, co- I coined this term. And the reason I say I coined the term is because I wanted to create a term for the leadership of the organization. This was not a diagnostic term. It was a term for the culture of our organization to understand that the brain is not immune to injury or illness. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to sever the conversation for our leadership and our military people away from the diagnostic language and the symptoms-based language saying that's for doctors. We as lay people need to understand that Bob or Graham is injured. He needs our support the same way we would support him or her if they had a sprained ankle, right? So coining the term. And I remember at the time, the medical folks said, you can't create a term. Who who the hell do you think you are? I said, well, I just did, right? and so, uh, lo and behold, you know, today, guess what? There are OSI clinics in Canada. Wow. Right. Right. Mm. Uh, now, uh, and so, you know, creating the foundation for this was instrumental. And my focus was always to change the way the military institution saw this, not the doctors. 
I was not on uh, on a quest to change the way doctors treated patients, and but I wanted the organization to understand these issues from a different point of view. And now that I'm a civilian and I serve corporate Canada, I, I don't talk about operational stress injury. I just talk about the stress injury phenomenon. I just took the O out of there. But it's the same sort of what causes a human being to become injured. And the reason I thought that was so important, Graham, is that if we can see people who are struggling through the injury lens versus the medical lens, we as human beings will probably have a propensity to know inherently that we can help somebody who's injured. Yeah. But we may not be able to help somebody who has a disorder, yeah. right? It's yeah. the same person. But if we only have the medical disorder lens to, to understand what's going on through this person, you say, oh, I'm not qualified. But you're absolutely qualified to support somebody who's injured, right? And so, of course, you understand that very well with all the work you've done. But it's hard to change that hard coding in into the psyche of people, right? So that was the the, the beginnings there. So a lot of confrontation with a with a system that was deeply entrenched in medical uh, thinking. Uh, and today, I think it's it's okay. People see the difference, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, as I think you know, I was involved in helping Gavin Larkin to start Are You OK in, here in Australia. And at the time, two of the biggest mental health charities didn't want to be involved because they didn't think we had any clinical people as part of our initiative and thought that it wasn't going to be wasn't going to be, uh, you know, run right sort of thing, but it was all about creating supportive relationships around those people that were struggling, have someone to genuinely ask, are you okay, and, and listen to the response and uh, really listen and encourage people to take action. Right. And so hopefully with, you know, some of the things that you've just talked about and looking at the incredible success of are you okay, um, people now realise that, the medical side or the medical intervention isn't the only way to do it. It's uh, it's one component, and it's an important component. Like I've, um, you know, been on medication in my life, sort of thing, and been really grateful for it. But in the cold light of day, I really think it was the lifestyle strategies. You know, having, you know, reigniting relationships with good friends, having a sense of purpose, exercising regularly. You know, it was those things that had the the biggest impact and. As part of my recovery, I was also part of a community support group and it was all people who'd had depression and had that uh, or anxiety or whatever. And the wonderful thing about this, which I'm sure you would uh, really relate to, is that you didn't have to explain what really bad depression or anxiety felt like because there were people there that had been through it as well mm -hmm. and there were people there that were now in a good place and so they were able to offer an, a sense of hope that uh, you know you could move beyond this and that hope from someone you trust is a very very powerful motivator and also something that really reassures us right. and uh, you know does sprinkle some light on a very very challenging situation absolutely mm. absolutely if you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. 
The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. So after, or might have been while you were still in the military, Steph, I understand that you went to the Mental Health Commission of Canada and did some work there. What was that? What was that? What did that work involve? Right. So at the time, so um, so do all this work. I create a national peer support program for the entire forces. Uh, we then expand to the families of military and veteran, and then we did a third expansion for bereaved families uh, of of those who died in combat or in, in accidents serving their country, and so. At the time, um, I had an opportunity to send uh, and and be seconded to the Mental Health Commission of Canada, who who probably at the time recognized that, well, this guy's no better than another person, but he certainly figured out how to do this in a very large system, as opposed to, uh, and, and by the way, I'd never would take credit. I did not invent peer support. Not at all. I just happened to have implemented it in a very large, accountable organization. And so I was entrusted at the commission for, uh, for the creation of national standards of practice for the, for the, for the function of peer support. And, uh, that was a, a two year journey. After that, I, I sort of left and I decided to serve my country in a different way because I realized it's, it's bad for military people, but at least military people, we sort of have a, not a reason, but a, a story to tell that will, garner some kind of understanding if if somebody's asking so uh i understand you had a mental health problem how did that happen if you tell them you served in rwanda in the middle of a genocide for 10 and a half months person is probably going to say oh boy uh, I, I get it but what if you don't have that story so i found that that there were so many human beings that just develop mental health problems just like some of us develop illnesses <laughs> You, we, it's funny that we never have to explain why the, that, that our, our diabetes is legitimate or, <laughs> or, or our heart condition is legitimate. But with mental health, it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's faking, right? So at the end of the day, I decided to leave the military and, and after this secondment. And the national standard is, is still very much in existence here in Canada. And, you know, of course, I... I follow the national standard that that my project teammates and, and I have created because we believe that it brings all the rigor that needs to be present and omnipresent in any well-created peer support program, right? Uh, and so uh, that was my time there. And then I created my company and it's been, it's been busy ever since, yeah. And when you think about interventions that do set up this, these peer support programs and 
reduce the stigma on mental health. You mentioned that, you know, in the case of the Defence Force, you had a, a three-star general who was your real champion. That was a, a critical foundation. What are the other foundations that you've observed are really important to have a better and, and more mentally healthy culture? Well, I think, you know, don't think that I'm for stigma, right? I, I, don't, I don't like stigma any more than anybody else, but I often think, and I often say to this date, uh, I think stigma is, is certainly with our clients, right? We have clients who say, we got to beat down stigma. And I'm thinking, well, there's other things we also need to do that if we do those things, stigma won't be a problem anymore. And you will have done something meaningful for your people. So we, I certainly believe that when you create the conditions for where people pivot, and, and by the way, when we launched a, a massive education campaign in the Canadian military to ensure that people understood inside the culture that the brain was not immune to injury or illness, and that there was a spectrum, there was, you know, a green, a yellow, an orange, and a red spectrum along which people can can unfortunately go towards the red, but it's possible to go back to the green, the green zone. That pivoted the culture in a sense, where several years later, I bumped into the head of social work, who was a friend of mine at the time. She had been promoted and we bumped in. She said, Stefan, you'd be so proud because, you know, I visit bases now across Canada and uh, and people talk with the spectrum language. They don't talk about Bob's crazy or Bob's got PTSD. They say Mm -hmm. Bob's orange. You know, we need to support him or Bob's yellow, right? And so I think educating people uh, about uh, about all this is extremely important. Mm -hmm. Implementing sustainable support systems is equally important. And the word sustainable can't be emphasized enough. I don't know what's happening in your corner of the world, Graham, but... So many people, organizations here look for the easy button, you know, and <laughs> I got to tell you, right, a quick fix or they have no budget, you know, they have no budget. So I want to change the world, but I have no budget. So what company wants to reinvent the ball bearing and yeah. who doesn't invest any money in R&D? So, you know, so th- there's a bit of this dichotomy between what they, what they say they believe in and what they fund, right? So... So sustainable change for us is is huge, and uh, and and I think now what we're seeing the pandemic again, the silver lining of the pandemic is th- th- there's a bigger gap now between those organizations who are willing to invest in mental health and those who who are staying behind now who still talk about mental health and focus on the stigma, you know, and focusing on the stigma as well. Uh, we have a, a, a Friday every month where we have a little lunch and learn and things like that, right? These little token things, or there's a new poster and mental <laughs> health is important. And uh, so, yeah, so I think organizations are, are, are splitting each other uh, from each other. Uh, those who are, 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 are actually doing and those who are talking, right? And uh, that's quite obvious now. And I think there's also been a huge change in priorities of organisations. The Australian technology company Atlassian and PwC put out a report called Return on Action. And what they were looking at is what were the societal issues that most concerned people. And they did it for 
North America as well as Australia. And they found out the number one societal issue that employees are concerned about is mental health. Mm. It's even gone ahead of access to healthcare and cost of living. It's become that important. But the other element which I found really interesting in this study was they found that uh, 54% of the employees surveyed were engaged in their work. But if their employer was actively doing something to address the societal issue they cared about, that went up to uh, almost, I think it was 89% engagement. So employees are wanting to see action in this area and they're really excited when it is, um, you know, the organisation does something about it. It's, um, and that really has come, I'm sure, because of the impact of uh, COVID sort of thing. Yeah, and I think uh, to, I, I think what's happening as well uh, more and more is employees are are voting and talking with their feet. They're just leaving. Yeah, and I think that's even more true of the younger generation. Yeah, Gen Z, the millennials aren't hanging out too too long, and a, a lot of people blame the millennials for this and that. I don't know if it's the same in Australia. No yeah. blaming here. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. And you know what? Mm-hmm. We dinosaurs mm-hmm. need to evolve. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm. Go- I'm not going to be around for the next 20 years as a CEO of my little company. Uh, but the, the these organizations, I think, are feeling the pain. Mm-hmm. Where you you've hired a, a good employee who happens to be 29 years old or 30 years old, and I think that is now the game changer. You know, uh, I don't know if you heard all those stories about these modern companies, like well, of course, like Google, and they have ping pong <laughs> tables and slot machines and free coffee and all this. Well. <laughs> After you've all done that there, do something meaningful for mental health and your employees will stick around. That's like the new free coffee, right? And the ping pong table. And the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to build on that point you, you mentioned, in the same study, it said that 69% of people would forego a promotion if it compromised their mental health. Right. You know, so that they would say no to a promotion for compromised mental health. So those sort of things really are showing that uh, there's greater priorities seen by this, certainly by employees and certainly by the millennials and, uh, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z. Um, and it's a very, very good thing. It's a, it's a great uh, step in the right direction. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, we have an, a, a person on our team. We're, we're just around just over 30 people in, in our mm-hmm. small organization. And one of our younger, not the youngest, but one of our younger employee uh, said, nope, I don't want I don't want commissions. I don't want to be involved in that because I want I want structure. I don't want so you know it's essentially I just want my salary. I want to do my job. I'm going to do a damn good job, but I don't <laughs> want all this other stuff, right? And I thought, wow, these people are a lot smarter than I was back in the day. Like, right, let's go for it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What do you think are the key elements of a high performing team? You know. I think from a, a team perspective, the, you know, I got to tell you though, there, there's, you're asking the right guy, but you're also asking the wrong guy because I know I don't do everything correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I, I, and I can't figure out what I do wrong to not completely set the conditions for transparency for my people to feel that they can actually disagree with me uh, and I'm not going to lose it or I'm not going to punish them, right? Uh, 
and in fact, we have. So I'm 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 sort of answering your question by telling you that I'm still struggling on figuring this out. But I I do believe that some of the elements is that uh, the power differentials are flattened as much as you can. Uh, bosses need to understand that they can veto anything. They don't need to remind anybody, right? And and so I think I think. Uh, Leveling off those 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 power differentials is extremely important. Uh, I also think that engaging team members, and I'm speaking now as a leader, right? Engaging team members in negotiating how to actually perform. Uh, in other words, if there's a deadline and there's a rush for something, you may know what the rush is, but uh, before you tell the employee engage them in trying to figure out what they think is feasible. You might be surprised with the answer. And this is, you'll see that I'm, I'm leaning on lowering that power differential, not exercising your authority, right? Engaging, talking to people, uh, figuring things out, putting people first. When there's a person problem, stop working. If you focus on people, and I think nurturing those instincts, I think, inherently will build a stronger team. This is on top of picking the people with the right education and the, and the skills and the and the training and all this stuff. And uh, But I think from a human emotional intelligence perspective, it's achieving that sweet spot where people feel they matter without creating a pity party either. Tipping the other way, where now everybody who has a little bit of a twinge there needs to take a week off, right? Uh, and I have to say, the less pressure you put on people, sometimes the more they perform and the more they outperform themselves. So it's almost like reverse psychology in a sense. And that to me creates a team. But, but, I don't want you to think that I figured it all out because <laughs> there's issues. You put people together, there will be issues, right? Yeah. But how do you minimize those? Yeah. That's what that's what I would throw at you, Graham. Yeah. And uh, just to build on that point, you know, I've seen you in meetings ask someone's thoughts who hasn't spoken, um, you know, maybe a, more, a quieter person, more of an introvert. And I really love that because, you know, it is – asking their input, and usually, you know, introverts often have great insight if they're invited to talk about it or suggest things. So, um, and right. really what we're also talking about is is team psychological safety. And, uh, you know, the, the, the qualities of team psychological safety is that people talk approximately equally. They're right. open to new ideas. You know, they they want to build on new ideas and, uh, you know, just the work that um, Harvard Business School and Google have done around psychological safety show that it is the number one predictor of great teams. People do feel cared for. They are invited to input ideas. It's not a democracy, but they're invited to contribute ideas. And they're, they're also invited to try new things, you know, to try to better serve their customers or or their colleagues sort of thing and increasingly i'm seeing this style getting a much much greater priority like you know people are contacting me specifically about wanting to have a program on psychological safety you know how we do create 
fundamental change so that things are um, things can move faster. Ironically, you know, when you do have people on board, things do move faster. Right. No, you're right in in meetings because I tend to um, be very uh, present in meetings, and uh, I try to, but it's probably more natural than I realize now to say if I'm in a meeting with two of my um, people and we're with a client and the client is talking to me, what I'll say, well, yeah, a few things come to mind. Uh, I'd like to hear what Leslie and John would say, but here's what I would say. Mm. And I don't let, a, I don't give a chance sometimes deliberately to the person who asking the question to say something, but it's done hopefully politely. And so I'll say what I have to say. And I say, Graham, what would you add to what I just said? Essentially, I actually bridge to the person who has not said anything deliberately. Why? Because I think as a leader, it's my role to ensure that all my people are, are heard as much as possible, right? Uh, and you're right. Um, I want to hear from people. Another thing I caught myself saying often is I'm happy to be wrong. Mm. Right. Mm. Often, as leaders, as you know full well, is uh, we're confronted with situation. We have to make decisions, and we're trying to figure things out, and we're talking about it. And then, as I come up with an option that I believe is 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 the solution to the problem, I, I will often, with my team, say something like, "Here's what I think we should do. What do you guys think?" And by the way, I am happy to be wrong. Mm. Because if I'm wrong, I'd rather find out now than in six months from now. And hopefully, not always, but hopefully maybe that creates the, you know, I think sometimes we need to say things. We need to tell people, I might be wrong. And if Mm. I am, tell me. I'm not making you responsible, but please tell me. Try to open that door because even if we say, please tell me, it may not be enough, right? So, yeah. but I tell you, it's a constant gymnastic, right? <laughs> and uh, and also, the, you know, everybody is different, and everybody will will interpret what you're saying in a different way. So it's it's I don't think there's there's one pathway here, right? It's very very uh, convoluted. Yeah. There's a uh, TED talk that I really love by Ray Dalio. He's the billionaire hedge fund owner, you know, very, very successful guy. But the TED Talk is how to have a culture where the best ideas win. And uh, right. he, he talks about practices of really everyone in their organisation, everything for a 23-year-old intern has the, the same input to ideas as Ray Dalio, you know, the, this billionaire, but it's something that he really strives for. I think it is yeah. very, very admirable to, um, you know, to, to consciously try to work out what is the best. You know, when we think about all of our knowledge, what's going to be the, the best option? Well, don't kid yourself. I am not a billionaire. Uh, so <laughs> I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe I'm not good at it enough. <laughs> uh, what do you do for your self-care, Steph? How do you keep yourself physically and mentally well winters are hard for me Mm. winters are hard uh and every time winter comes around i actually worry a little bit summers falls springs are much easier i'm a water guy i do a lot of water activities i have not mastered the non warm weather activities i used to ski and all i lost interest in all of that um what i i think 
where I, uh, and so I, I'm almost thinking, poor Graham, you know, I'm not coming up with great tips for your, your, no, no, your no. people listening here. <laughs> but, you know, I think we have to acknowledge sometimes we're having difficult. That's the first step, right? And so I try to uh, focus on a little bit of spirituality. Uh, I really try to keep myself grounded. I have acquired, like it or not, over the last couple of decades, struggling with a mental health problem, uh, some pretty good ways to actually cognitively bring me back. So from a psychology perspective, when I'm you know, not doing too well, I can talk myself off the ledge, if I can say so, right? I, I can actually bring myself down. Um, and But that's not self-care, right? However, remembering that I have that skill is huge because when we don't know, we can talk ourselves off the ledge. When we start to feel right, we, it, it, it becomes that, that, that fear is an accelerant in that, for me anyways, in that decompensating strategy, right? Moving from the green to the yellow, to the orange and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I am probably not a great person that has a huge inventory of, of things that, hey, I got the perfect self-care formula figured out for myself. I will pivot from, from swimming to, uh, you know, foiling, uh, to water skiing, to boating, to spear fishing. You can do a lot of water stuff, right? Uh, to yoga, to running at times, to working hard. Yeah, I love hard work, like physical work. It's probably because computer, right? You you don't feel you're accomplishing anything. Last <laughs> week, actually, I went up there and I I, I chopped some wood with an axe, right? Uh, to, just to move and get the right. And and so um and so I wish I was better at it. Uh, but you know what? The question is very relevant. Because each individual has to develop their own self-care modality. What works for them, right? And so you don't have to say, oh, well, Graham runs and Stefan runs, so I think I'll start running. Maybe that doesn't help you, right? So yeah. it's so important that these things be individualized. And, um, and I think it's a constant effort, constant, constant effort. I know that if I don't read, I don't do yoga, and I'm not having an ability to hit the water that I'm not doing as well as I could be. Those are, those are three indications. If I, if I go, if I start, you know, wimping out on yoga, I'm not reading regularly and I'm not in the water, I know I'm struggling, right? Yeah. Therefore, I got my formula, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And uh, when you think about your leadership style, Stefan, What's really influenced you along the way? Can you think of, you know, one person or one book or one podcast that has had a really big influence on how you lead now? It's funny, Graham, because I come from a military culture where the military, you know, the military doesn't deliberately, but a lot of heroes are created out of wars and right. And here I am, I emanate, I come from that culture. And it's funny, I don't, I don't have heroes in the sense that I look up to people uh, because of uh, the fact that they, you know, they have an autobiography or they have so many followers or they make so much money and all this. Mm. My mind always, you know, to me, 
the true heroes of society are not the people we hear about in the news that wrote books that were bestsellers. Mm. They are truly the people who, despite um, adversity and uh, my grandfather, mm. to me, was a hero. Mm. He couldn't read or write, didn't know how to do math. And he resolved a, a stairwell issue at a doctor's residence in his village where engineered had fa engineers had come from Montreal. They drove an hour and a half to install some, a staircase. And my grandfather, who was a self-taught, beaten up as a boy, carpenter, who could not do math, <laughs> fixed the stairwell for that doctor's house, right? Mm. That, to me, is a hero. And so, so I think I, I have no problem being uh, vulnerable as a leader to my people. I have no problem being wrong. I have no problem being humble and saying I'm sorry. And I think my hero are the people who, despite the odds, have succeeded, right? And I think, and by the way, I'm not against university degrees and all that, but I think we put so much attention to what mm. academia produces as uh and I find it so sad that so many people mm -hmm. are getting left behind uh, in, in all sorts of occupations that society doesn't really value now. And if you're at a cocktail party and this person's a carpenter or a plumber, nobody's going to talk to that person. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, it's interesting because who's fixing your Porsche? It's a mechanic. Be careful, right? So my, I think my leadership style has been influenced by that that the humility of it all. And I firmly believe leaders eat last. Feed your people, take care of your people, take care of yourself last, right? Uh, so no, I don't have heroes really, but I do. But that's a, that's a really great message about, you know, leaders eating last. And I know that um, Simon Sonic has written a book on that subject, but it, it, but it is... It is really true, and you know, other people like Jim Collins, the business author, has referred to it as level five leadership, where you're more passionate about your people's success and the company's success than your own, right? And uh, you know, takes the takes the uh, the ego out of it, right? Yeah, and this eat, eating last, by the way, is not a, a you know, it's not something I caught off YouTube from Simon. I saw I saw his his thing there. But, you know, and, and no disrespect to Simon Sinek and all this, but I also find that there's all these buzzwords that we grab, we grapple onto, but do these people know what it means to eat last? I know. When I was in a regiment and the rations were being distributed, wow. sometimes I did not get any. Yeah. I never starved. I never, no, no, no pity for, I never starved. But the, the point is you are taught you eat last. Yeah. You need to feed the troops, right? And so so society grabs these things, but I think it's important for people to actually do it. Yeah. Do eat last when there's nothing left. Experience that and humble yourself, right? Now, it's a metaphor for other things, right? Um, and so, yeah, though, I think we forget that... Uh, and. Uh, in the military, you know, we always want to to portray the generals. I always want, there's an artist in Canada here who did a series of paintings, generals, right? And I know this artist. 
and I asked this artist, why don't you paint a soldier? You know, not because I'm still connected to the military, but what's wrong with painting an ordinary person who did extraordinary things, right? But society always gravitates to the the, the star factor, right? So anyways, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think uh, that's what makes me, that's what makes me content and happy and comfortable is focusing on those unsung heroes, right? But uh, yeah. It's been a real um, pleasure catching up today, Steph. I've very much enjoyed our discussion. We've known each other must be 18 months now, and it's been just wonderful working with you. <laughs> a couple of years, we, just before the <laughs> pandemic. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. And, uh, and also, and also um, you know, just hearing about your journeys in Canada working with companies and ours in Australia, and there's, there's lots of similarities, I think, um, you know, in, in terms of progress on mentally healthy workplaces, I really think that um, our two countries have been very fortunate, even though we see there's lots of room for improvement, it's lot, a lot better than many, many other countries. And that's something we should be um, grateful for. And uh, I guess just as a final question, Steph, if you could go back to your 18-year-old self, and I guess you were about to start your time in the Defence Force, knowing what you know, know now, what advice would you give your Eighteen-year-old self, if you had that opportunity. Oh, my God, don't take so many risks. I think, knowing what I know now, um, I've always been a risk taker. I still take risks today, but I wish, um, yeah, I wish I would have had a way to to temper my risk-taking instincts. Because I do think, and this is where I think we all have to take responsibility to some degree regarding our own mental health journeys. Um, I think that I have actually contributed to my own mental health challenges in some ways by being born a certain way, living a certain way. And if I knew that my 18-year-old self was would respect my advice i would probably give that advice but then again when you're 18 year old you're invincible and you're not going to follow that advice you're just going to keep leaning forward right Graham? but yeah i think so because and this is this is important because for people who develop mental health problems you know and who struggle through through the the recovery path and all this it is so important to remain responsible for our own recovery and uh, I think so many people fall in the trap of blaming the company or blaming the doctor or blaming society and all this. And we fall into this victim mode, right? And, and I now look back and I'm thinking, my God, I, I was part of the problem. Yeah. You know, if I yeah. could have only slowed down. And we need to take responsibility, not only for what brought us here, but also um, how to recover, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up today, Steph. Thank you so much for your honesty, your authenticity, and uh, for the great work you're doing. You're welcome, Graham. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. 
When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.